everyone. I'm Bonita Nuttall, and this is The Talking Stick, the place where we unlock the secret to creating authentic connection every time we present from the inside out. You're going to hear collective wisdom, insights, and practical strategies from communication experts around the world on how to present with increased confidence, clarity, and credibility. I tell you, I am super excited to be here with you today because it's our very first episode of the Talking Stick Podcast. So exciting. I'm like a kid at Christmas. <laughs> it's been a dream of mine for over two years and today it's finally here. So welcome, welcome and welcome. I'm not only excited about today's episode because of that. I couldn't think of a more amazing human being to kickstart this show than someone who calls himself a genetically modified optimist. Come on. <laughs> In this special debut episode of The Talking Stick, David Downs and I talk about how to be more influential on stage and in the boardroom. He shares his experience and expertise about using humor in presentations, what to do and what not to do. We talk about how to go about building connection with your audience, speaking with authority, the importance of storytelling and emotions in the boardroom, yep, in the boardroom and on stage, how to receive feedback and so much more. Feedback is the breakfast of champions. You know, you should relish it. You know, you should hunger for feedback because without it, you're living in splendid isolation in your little bubble. But as the more feedback you get, the better you're going to get. David was so generous with so much of his wisdom and his insights, and I cannot wait to share this episode with you. Before we jump into the conversation, let me tell you a little bit more about our special guest. So, David Downs has had a successful career in the private and public sector with senior roles at organizations such as Microsoft and New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. David is a published author on New Zealand innovation with two highly successful books, Number 8 Rewired and Number 8 Recharged. He's an ex-comedian, TV and radio actor, semi-finalist for New Zealander of the Year, and a genetically modified organism who documented his battle with cancer in his book, a mild touch of the cancer. David co-founded SOS Business NZ, a not-for-profit initiative to help cafes and other small businesses during COVID-19. And it quickly became a huge hit. And to date, get this, it sold over $2 million worth of vouchers for over two and a half thousand small businesses. David released a new book, Silver Linings, in March 2021, and continues to act as a consultant for government and industry, as well as a director on a number of boards, including the chairman of the Ice House, the High Tech Trust, and the Well Foundation. And to top it all off, David is now a CEO of the New Zealand Story, an ambitious organization marketing New Zealand to the world. On a personal note, David is truly one of the kindest, most down-to-earth humans I know. And with that, let's hop into today's episode. Well, welcome, 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 David Downs, to the very first episode of The Talking Stick. Oh, okay, Mark, Benita, lovely to see you. And can I and can I just compliment you first of all on that amazing introduction? Not about me, but just your, your beautiful tone of voice, the way that you kind of are, are presenting yourself is demonstrating what you're talking about is wonderful. Oh, thank you so much, David. Thank you, thank you. Coming from you, huge, huge compliment. Oh, cool. <laughs> if the meeting of the Mutual Appreciation Society will now begin. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Oh, so David, such a pleasure to have you on my show. Honestly, I've known you for many, many years here in New Zealand now. Okay, so let's get started with, you call yourself a genetically modified optimist. What is that? 
<laughs> well, that, that particular phrase refers to a period of my life about five years ago where I had a terminal cancer. And it's a long, convoluted story. We won't go into a huge detail. But essentially, I was treated and then cured from, with um, a new immune therapy, which, which involved genetically re-engineering my immune system to fight cancer. Wow. And so it's genetically modif- modification. And the optimist bit becomes because when I tell the story, I tell the story of how essentially optimism and positive mindset and uh, looking for opportunities helped me get through what was, you know, a pretty horrible diagnosis. But that, how those kind of lessons can, can apply to other people too. So, yeah, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but, um, but based on a reality. Yeah, it's such an amazing story, David. I've seen you in action and I've, I've seen your keynote and I've heard your story and it is so powerful. And I think one of the things that really stands out for me is the amazing way you're able to take humor and, <laughs> and inject it into something that is really serious. I mean, you had us all laughing and then crying and then walking away feeling inspired at the end of your keynote. You know, how do you do that? <laughs> Awesome. Well, that's kind of pertinent to the to your podcast, really, and the work that you do as well, which is, as a speaker, I suppose if you think of yourself as speaking and communicating, first of all, I'd step right back. Communication to me is one of the most important skills you can have as a leader. Mm. And therefore, you need to actually put a bit of effort into it. And you need to understand a little bit about audience psychology, you know, who are the people in the audience? What are they expecting to hear from you? You know, so you, you sort of tailor a little bit to what they're thinking. And you need to, I suppose, what I think about is, Human beings are quite emotional and creative and we feel and we have intuition. We think of ourselves as rational, you know, logic, data-based things, but we're not. We're, we're emotional. And so yeah. when you appeal to the emotional core of a person in a, in a talk, even if it's quite a serious talk, you know, like talking about my cancer journey or even sort of a business talk, you need to think about the emotional ride that you want them to be on. Mm. And it's, particularly if you're doing a keynote, it's like 45 minutes or whatever a keynote, you can't stay up the whole time and you certainly shouldn't stay down the whole time. You've got to yeah. go through sort of waves. And um, and part of the, a great way to do that is to is to introduce humour at the right point because humour yeah. is a release, it's a tension release, and it, it changes the mood and it also allows you to kind of bring in, I suppose, more serious elements in a way that doesn't frighten people or make them feel very, you know, down and sad. So I sound like I've really thought this through. I haven't really, but what I've, <laughs> as a... As a as a student, as someone who stands on the stage and talks and watches how audience reacts, as you mentioned in the intro, I used to be a stand-up comedian and some of the same skills are in there. Yeah. You're kind of working with the audience's energy and, and trying to work out what's the right moment here to, to release some tension or to build tension and in a way that appeals to, as I say, people's emotional brain. And how do you know that moment, David? It's such an important point you're mentioning there because like humour can either make or break a presentation. Yeah. How do you know that moment? I mean, no one wants to hear crickets. Yeah, and you definitely don't want to use humour badly. I mean, humour is a tool like any other. You've got to understand how to use it. You know, I've seen, unfortunately, some people who use really bad jokes or or don't read the audience properly or, you know, don't time it well. So it is a bit of a tricky one. And humour should never be used to bring other people down or belittle because audiences will quickly, you know, see through that. Um, it's okay to sort of bring yourself down and be a bit self-deprecating. That's actually, that's usually fine. Yeah. But it is, is it, is it that skill that you a bit, a bit learn over time and you bit, can be taught definitely. I mean, I've, you know, I know that you do some work with speakers and, and um, helping them recognise a moment in, or a time in a, in a talk where you're likely to, 
get them to a certain emotional level and then what is the right next move? Is it to keep going emotionally or is it to release tension or whatever? Those are skills that you, you can develop over time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you were to kind of from a very practical point of view, like I know that so humour comes in threes. There's like, I don't, I don't know the official terms from it because I'm not a comedian. And when I get on stage, like I'm just, I do my best to be myself, but I certainly am probably, I'm not the funniest of, of speakers that's out there, you know? And I kind of think it's really important to, to also stay in our lane, to not try yeah. to be funny and try to be, you know, something that we're not. Yeah. So I guess the, I, a couple of things in that, but I think the question I wanted to ask you is what are the three steps to delivering a really, yeah, something really funny, like something humorous? Yeah. And it is really right. I mean, not everyone has got a natural humor. So you do have to be a bit cautious and, and, you know, find someone you trust to really critique you. And as a speaker, you know, be aware of what you're good at and bad at and, and welcome the feedback. And feedback is a gift from particularly from people that you trust. Yeah. But there are things that, that, you know, are common. And it's not necessarily about the, you know, things come in threes, which by the way, they sort of do in comedy, but it's more about rhythm. Mm. Well done humor. If you watch good stand-up comedy or even sketch comedy, is it's it's about a rhythm. It's about a meter. It's about how um, language, and I'm sure there's someone somewhere in the world has done a really amazing PhD on this stuff about how <laughs> rhythm can impact your brain waves or something in a way. Yeah. I'm, you know, I would be very surprised if that's not the case. But but I haven't done the work, so don't trust me on that one. But no, that's okay, David. You've had the experience, so <laughs> and you certainly know as as a someone who's sort of either done a lot of speaking or stand up comedians will definitely get that there's a rhythm to it. And, you yeah. know, and sometimes the reason things come in threes is because it creates a pattern and that, and the third thing usually breaks the pattern and that's kind of humour. Humour is like right. an unexpected thing. And then often you'll see another thing called a callback, which is like, you know, minutes later you might you might refer back to the thing you said, the joke, the, the comment, whatever, in a way that reinforces it again. And so you can learn those, te- those techniques are things that are definitely can be practiced and learned. Even if you don't have natural innate humor, you can learn how to do some of those tricks, if you like. Mm-hmm. And then presence, you know, and again, Belita, you're really good at understanding how to use the stage, how to use your physical presence, how to use your voice. Well, thank you, David. Uh, how to command attention. And that stuff, again, if you if you work out how to use it well, can reinforce that kind of emotional connection. So it's not about dominance. It's about, you know, because a physical presence on stage could be you actually being quite meek, but if you're yeah. doing it in the right way, it actually can draw people into you. You know, you can lower your voice is sometimes much more effective than raising it, as you would know. Yes. So there are things you can learn. I think even if you're not a natural comedian, I think you're right though. If you if you're not a natural comedian, the, you know, don't whatever you do, Google a joke and then try and really badly interject it into into your um, script, unless yeah. it's something you know super quick and fast and done and you're moving on. You know, and especially dad jokes, dad jokes. <laughs> you have to be super careful about puns, about, yes. you know, grown ones, because you don't want to, you don't want to, like, deflate. You're trying yes. to, as I say, you're trying to manage the energy of the room, if you like. That's really the whole purpose. I mean, it goes back to that, that great saying, is that people will forget what you say and they'll forget what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. You know, yeah. that, and I can't remember that, who that quote is from. It's a wonderful one, because that's exactly right. You want people to leave the room and go, wow, I went on a little emotional journey. Yes. And therefore that, you know, managing energy levels of the room is the way to do that. And David, yeah, I love that quote. I think it was Maya Angelou actually that said that. Absolutely love that one. So when when did you, if you think back, you know, because for, for some people there's this belief that, you know, some people are either just born as natural communicators uh, or not. And if you are, you'll do well. And if you're not, you won't. 
for you, when did you first take up your talking stick and, and how did you know, or did you know that this was something you were going to do professionally? Wow, that's a good, I love the talking stick by the way, that's a cool thing. Oh, thank you. When I was, probably when I was at school still, I remember, you know, I was always sort of quite happy to be a bit of a class clown, but I did actually, I remember years and years ago when I was literally probably 15, 16, I did a Toastmasters thing, not sure why, but it was cool. And I learned a couple of the basic skills and then, but like everything, you can be taught to a certain level and then you've just got to practice and practice and practice to get better at it. And so for me, that practice was, you know, during, you know, at school I did, shows and that sort of thing at university I was part of the um, the, rev- the capping reviews we did lots of um, kind of performances two or three times a year uh, and then after that I became a you know as I say was a, an actor on TV and then I did stand-up comedy for years and so it's that whole concept of you know practice and practice and practice yeah. to learn the patterns and the rhythms and the and that sort of thing so yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm not despondent about it. I, I believe people can be taught to a certain level and then I think you just got to practice really well. So for me, it was right back then. I really love that, David. You know, I think a lot of people look at overnight successes and go, oh my God, wow, you were amazing. Yeah. And look how well you did. It's like, yeah, that took 20 years of my life to get to that point. <laughs> right, I'm a 20-year overnight success. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's not there to make you feel like, oh God, that means I can never make it because every moment is an incremental improvement and every time you fail, you learned, you know? I mean... I look back at the times when I really learned some of my, you know, your stagecraft and your and your comedy and that sort of thing. And it was the times when things went horribly wrong. I mean, yeah. boy, oh boy, I was probably pretty average as a comedian in, when I was in my 20s. Had some good gags and the odd good thing, but I hadn't learned a lot of the skills. And I'm still learning. Everyone's still learning. Yeah. So don't feel bad about it. Don't have one bad, you know, experience on stage or one gig go right back in and do it again and learn from it and, as I say, get feedback from people. Yeah. I mean, you get feedback. The beautiful thing about speaking and doing keynotes and and also comedy is you're getting immediate feedback constantly if you're open to it, if you're listening. Mm. But also plant people around that give you that feedback. Oh, that's that's a good one. That's an interesting one. Plant people around that give you feedback. Yeah, and have, like, people that you trust. Like, I mean, for example, if this isn't meant to be obsequious or it's going to be, but if you were at one of my gigs or one of my talks – now that I know you really well, I would I would afterwards go, what do you think? How do you think that went? Like that bit in the middle, was that all right? Yeah. Or, you know, I changed it a bit. What do you think? And it wouldn't be because I'm self, I'm worried about it necessarily. It would be because I value that you might go, no, that worked well. Or actually you kind of lost them a bit there or that wasn't clear or whatever. So just a few people like that, that are trusted friends. Yeah. And, you know, if you're worried about your ego, you don't have to listen to them. <laughs> but it's useful to um, get another person's perspective, particularly a more diverse perspective. I mean, I'm acutely aware, for example, that I'm a, you know, 50-year-old male. And when I'm talking to audiences, I've got a very diverse group. And I might say things that might make perfect sense to me in my context, but not to a different context. So it's great to get that diverse opinion. And so how did you, because I think it's all about framing and the meaning that we create, David, you know, around whatever it is. For a lot of people, feedback, it can be quite daunting. It's almost like, oh, it's criticism. What's what's yeah. the meaning that you hold around feedback that enables you to receive it? Yeah, that's a really insightful comment because feedback can be really, yeah, if you're not geared up for it, then feedback is criticism and criticism immediately triggers the amygdala and you get this defense and you get this kind of fight or flight thing and yeah. it really can go badly wrong. And what I learned, I mean, years ago, I was, did quite a bit of work with um, in corporate land and we were taught frameworks, I suppose, of feedback and feedback. The first and most important thing is that you should consider feedback a gift. Like mm. any feedback you get, 
whether it's positive or negative, is someone giving you the gift of their time to take their opinion and give it to you. Now, you might not agree with it, but if you consider it a gift. Wow. And so we were taught, and I, and I think it's actually quite, it's a bit, again, a bit cheesy, but it really works, is the first reaction to any piece of feedback you get is thank you. Yeah, you know, I love that. Thank you for taking the time to tell me that you didn't like what I said or that you thought I did it badly or that I'm an idiot because you took the time to tell me and that will help me. Yeah. And if you frame that as in that point of view of, okay, feedback is a gift and I have to learn to accept the gift, whether or not I, I agree with it, and you get to disagree if you want. Yeah. But it stops it then being this fight or flight kind of negativity of he said, she said, you said, I hate, whatever, you know. And yeah, I think that's a, that's probably the first trick. Yeah, I really love that. And, you know, there's a reason why cheese is so good. Um, <laughs> because it's so true, you know, it's, um, I really love that. It's be true, yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. I really, really love that. And for me, you know, feedback, the way that I frame it as well is that it's nourishing learning. It's, it helps me to accelerate my learning. So the minute I hear, you know, yesterday I did a speaking and MC gig and immediately I asked for feedback, but I think you raised another really important point there. It's about who do we trust to receive that feedback? And I think Brene Brown speaks about it so well when she speaks about unless you're in the arena getting your ass kicked and you're bloodied and sweaty and all that sort of thing, you know, I don't want your feedback. And I really love that. So That's right. Yeah. choosing trusted people. It's a good point. I mean, there's another cheesy cliche, but again, a really good one. Write this down if you, if you need it. There's that feedback is the breakfast of champions. Oh. You should relish it. You know, you should hunger for feedback because without it, you're living in splendid isolation in your little bubble. But as the more feedback you get, the better you're going to get. I love that, David. Really love that. I want to talk also to you a bit about the boardroom because you've not only you know been on stage, but you've been in, you're, you're in the boardroom. You're the CEO. You're on many um, different boards, and being influential in the boardroom is also really important for leaders to be able to you know use use their voice with authority to be able to inspire people to take action. What do you think is the key for you to being able to do that? It's a big question. Gosh, you've thought through these questions very well. Um, they're good questions. Uh, and I love the fact that you do think about that because the first most important thing is what you, is, is the fact that you've thought about it. Exactly your question is right because if you're in a board scenario or, or any meeting really, any kind of important sort of scenario where you've got a group of people trying to make a collective decision, it's got to be a conscious act. It's got to be something that you put some effort into and some thought into. I mean, I said it earlier, but I believe it. It's good communication is a really important skill for any person, but any leader in particular, it's one of your most important skills. And if you're unable to articulate your strategy, your future, your aspirations, then you're unlikely to be able to get any consensus or opinion from others that matters. So so I guess that the first thing is in at the right point in the boardroom is, you know, being able to state clearly and crisply your your vision for the future, whatever that might be. I mean, it sounds really highfalutin because your vision for the future might be, what do you think the sales numbers are going to be next week or whatever, you know. Yeah. It means, what you're trying to say is, your what what's your stance? What action do you think needs to be taken in order to get towards that stance or position or vision mm. in a way that, that gets people uh, on the same page as you? And again, if you take that sort of thinking, you can apply it to, you know, big picture decisions that a company's making to small decisions that a team's making. It's all about, painting a vision for the future and then trying to show people there's a path towards it and then motivating them to action. So that framework, if you think about it, which is just how you make decisions as a team, requires strong communication, convincing people, painting a vision that's compelling, 
making it tangible about what the next steps might be, that sort of thing. So th- there's actually some really nice frameworks around how you think about how you think about change. And um, yeah. again, comes back to clear communication, compelling communication. I agree with you entirely on that, David. And, and you know, especially because you're a you're a storyteller, essentially, like you're an amazing storyteller. How important is it for you in the boardroom as well to incorporate story? And do you think it's appropriate? Yeah, I reckon um, we don't do enough of it. And it goes back to that comment I was saying earlier is that humans are emotional creatures. I remember years ago I did a, um, I did a course at Stanford University and I just throw that in there to be a bit of a wanker. <laughs> anyway, I was at Stanford this one time. Oh, yeah, very intelligent. Um, no, anyway, I, was, I did this course. I love it. And actually one of the case studies, it was a case study on decision-making and how they call what's called neuroeconomics, which is the... The concept that economics as a study is very dry and boring. It's, you know, charts and lines and it's all about rationality. But actually, people make irrational decisions and then justify them, you you know, or reverse engineer their decisions to fit their emotional state. And this particular case study was about uh, a decision that was made, was contrasting two decisions that two different airline or two different um, air manufacturers made, Boeing and Airbus. Okay. And they've sort of reached similar decisions at the board level, and it was—it's a fascinating study if you get to read it because it's talking about massive investments, you know, multi-billion-dollar investments into either creating a wide-body plane or not. And I know this sounds very rational and emotional, and and what it came down to is um, the study realised is that the reason they took, took different paths is because of the emotional state of the people in the boardrooms at the time those decisions were made. Wow! Both of them had amazing data, and they had graphs and charts and spreadsheets and all the information you needed. Yeah. But actually the thing that's, that, that made the difference was the emotionality of the decision-making process, who said what, what stories were told, what visions was, were painted. And actually it came down to even more basic things at a human level, which was at what time of the day did they discuss it and what, what sort of energy levels did those people have because they hadn't had breakfast, one of them was after lunch and they were a bit sleepy. You know, there was these things that came in wow. that actually kind of horrify you. <laughs> but, uh, because you go, oh, my God, people make, you know, it, it sounds like you know, news just in, you know, <laughs> people are humans. Um, <laughs> but, but it's a pretty fascinating example. And, again, I think about that quite regularly in a meeting. You go, man, we're really not in the right mood for this discussion. Uh, we haven't got the right energy. People are distracted yeah. or we're not happy. People aren't happy. There's clearly other stuff going on. You've got to be really conscious of that. And in your communication and storytelling, to get back to your question, part of storytelling is to get people to a different emotional state. And, you know, again, I sound like I've really thought this through a lot. I have a little bit. But definitely there are times when it's very appropriate in a, in a board meeting or whatever to just step back and go, hey, let's just talk about the customer, the person that we're going to impact here, the reality of what's going on, what our team are thinking and feeling. And then we'll come back to our spreadsheets and, and make some sort of decision. But we need to be in the right sort of mindset. Yeah, I love that. Taking the audience on a journey from one emotional point to another emotional point. And, you know, I, I don't, I think that requires a certain amount of vulnerability as well, though, David. And I think a lot of leaders mm. that I've been working with feel that, you know, there's no time in the boardroom to get a story out because yeah. everybody's so busy. It's like, get it on it, get it out there and let's move on. Like just, you know, yeah. get, get, go to page 95 for me, please. And just give me, give me the synopsis. That's it. That's right. Where's the, where's the summary? Where's my decision? What's the action point? Yes. It's funny you talk about that. I was just a couple of days ago, we were, I was at a meeting and we were talking about the difference in sort of decision-making and meeting etiquette between te ao Māori, 
the Māori worldview yes. and te ao Pākehā, the kind of work Pākehā worldview. And that, that sort of goes to the point you're making. One is, you know, and it, this is, you know, grass, crass generalisation, but it's largely right, is that in the sort of Western way of working, you're about actions and minutes and, you know, following up and agendas. And in the Western, more in, in, in the more indigenous way of thinking, the more sort of socially conscious way of thinking, which comes from particularly here in New Zealand from Māori, but actually I think is a common thing, it's more about connections and, and relationships and what is the long-term and reciprocal, you know, uh, expectations of each other. And the two worlds kind of clash a little bit because when you walk into a meeting and it's all action minutes meetings, but, at, you know, and whatever agendas, but you haven't formed some sort of emotional relationship or connection or be not values alignment. Gosh, we're getting very deep now, Benita, but... Um, I love it. Then, the two things clash completely. Yeah. One of the things you do in Māori culture, for example, is a process, if you like, and they call it, it's called whakawhanaunatanga, which is the bringing together to become a family or a group. You know, whanau, yes. family, whanauna, making a family, and tanga, the, the spirit of, of a family. tanga means to create the spirit of a family. Wow. And so that. one of the first the most important things you learn in Māori culture is that you don't start a meeting with right, here are the actions from the previous meeting, who's done what, who's done what. Yeah. And by the way, I have to keep reminding myself of this because I often find my styles clashing, particularly in, in that cross-cultural view. Sure. Because you, you need to form relationship, you need to take the time. I know it's going to sound frivolous, it, but it isn't. It's really important. When you go into a board meeting or a, or a leadership team meeting is maybe just check in on everyone. It can be very, it can be simple. It can be a five-minute thing of how's everyone feeling today? You know, what happened for you on the weekend? Mm. In our Western culture, that's, oh, what a waste of time. That's just small talk, yeah. chit-chat. No, no, it's not. It's how humans relate to each other. And we create this sense of emotional connection. I love that. I'm sure people here would have, would have sensed it or seen it before. Is that scenario you get sometimes where... You're in a meeting, big meeting, important. Everyone's very much on their game and sort of tensed up and the first hour goes by and the boss is talking and everyone's trying to make decisions. And then something happens and it changes the nature of the meeting. Something might be a, a we break for coffee and over coffee you start to actually talk to people mm. or someone makes a joke and then someone else builds on it and you realise actually it's okay, we've released tension. Yeah. And suddenly the mood of the meeting changes, the direction changes and and, and actually it probably gets much more productive. Yes, so it's so funny to me that we have to kind of relearn that all the time. <laughs> yeah. So my, my suggestion would be build in five to ten minutes at the beginning of every meeting, which is about building connection. Yeah, that's such gold there. Just the connection, taking time to connect because that is the, I think that's the foundation for being able to influence as well. You know, it's building those relationships. And if we don't have relationships, how can we connect? How can we actually, you know, invite people to move and change their perspective and to go from one place to another if, if there's no connection? Yeah. And it goes right back to that point again of how do you view other people? Are they, are they people or are they units? Are they FTEs and staff? You know, yes. I love this phrase that, you know, you hire staff, but then bloody human beings turn up, you know, and, oh, <laughs> right? and they screw up all your plans because you had all this, this idea of strategy and stuff. And then, you know, someone comes up and they say they're not feeling well or their kid's sick or whatever. They've got, you've got problems at home. Yeah. You know, so you got to just run towards that. We are, we are emotional creatures who have evolved you know, this thing that says we put on shirts and go to work and look very important, but actually we're just, we're, we're social creatures, yes. you know, creative, and, and we have to, you know, embrace that. 
Yeah, so so important that as well. Um, recognizing that we are people, we're not just numbers, yeah. and and that it's important for you know for for all of us to feel that sense of community and and to create that connection. So, David, we got a couple of minutes left, and I could probably say, I could talk to you all day because this has been awesome. <laughs> we got a couple of minutes left, and I wanted to ask if you can give three really. You've already given quite a few and amazing practical stuff in here, real gold. If you can give three practical tips very quickly with the listeners on that you've learned for yourself or that you've experienced and, and how we can improve our speaking abilities. Mm. Practice. Okay, I'll be cliche. Practice, practice, practice. There you go. No, <laughs> anyway. um, but it is. The first one is practice, practice, practice. Yes. Because yeah, you only get better by you don't think your way better, you act your way better. You know, and this mm. is this is a, that's a great thing. The second one would be find those trusted people in your network. They could be team members, they could be your boss, they could be friends like you, Benita, who who will give you some honest feedback and know how to do it. And then the third one is learn how to accept feedback as a gift. Oh, I love that. I really do love that. All feedback is a gift because I think there's there's also um, in neurosemantics we speak about it and say there's truth in every in every perspective. Mm. There's a measure of truth in every perspective. And so if Correct. someone's offering... Might be on a spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> Some might on the higher end of the spectrum, <laughs> but it's on the spectrum. Yeah, love it. The feedback you get on Twitter might be right at the one end of the spectrum that you can <laughs> largely say, thank you for the feedback I'm choosing to ignore you. Yes. Oh, it's, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for your gift. It's going in the bin. See you later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the wrong color. <laughs> oh, David, it has been so awesome, awesome having you here with me. Thank you for honoring me and our listeners here for, you know, with being here and sharing all of your amazing experience and insights. Um, absolute pleasure having you on the talking stick and can't wait for our next coffee. Thank you. With your podcast. Yay, thank you so much. Right, well, you can find out more about David on my website. If uh, you're here in New Zealand or Australia or anywhere in the world and you haven't booked David yet to hear him speak, I highly recommend getting him in. Uh, You don't want to miss what he's got to say. Uh, It'll be something you'll never forget, I can assure you. And that's it. Oh my goodness. That's it. Um, From me, Bonita Nuttall, this is the very first episode of The Talking Stick. If you want to connect with me directly, all of my details are on my website, bonitanuttall.com. If you haven't already, please hit subscribe, share this with somebody you think might benefit. And together, we will build on how to present you from the inside out, one week at a time. Thank you for listening. It's been awesome having you here. I'm Bonita Nuttall. I look forward to being with you in our next episode. And until then, please remember to turn up the you in all you do. Mm-hmm.